0: Welcome to Curious and Quirky. We believe curious leaders change the world. Curious and Quirky is a LinkedIn live event with course leaders from Caltech Executive Education. This is a fast paced five minute per speaker. Oh, yeah. Take on what's hot in marketing, innovation, transformation, future of work, platform strategy, design, and agility. Brought to you by the course leaders from Caltech Executive Education.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, friends. Wherever you might be joining us, uh, welcome to this month's Curious and Quirky event. My name is Tim Boyd, uh, your host for this month's session. Uh, and really, as with all of our sessions, we'll be discussing some of the most intriguing and insightful topics from around the world, business with brilliant minds from the Caltech Executive Education Team. Questions or comments, we would love to hear from you during today's session. So uh, why don't you put your comments in the chat window and we'll uh, we'll make sure to address them throughout the throughout the hour here. Um, and with that, we'll move right into the speakers. I'd like to introduce to you one of the most insightful marketing experts in the field today, who has a passion for helping companies unlock their potential by evolving strategic marketing skills and guiding global managers with proven frameworks and tools. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, I give you Mary Abazia.
2: Wow, thank you, Tim. I love that introduction. <laughs> So my talk today is about how uh, companies are addressing this crazy inflation. Specifically, most of our clients are saying, how can we cut costs to protect our margins while keeping our customers happy? I'm going to highlight a few companies, including Happy Returns, that provides return bars. Now, I don't think there's any alcohol included, but... (laughs) There may be some ideas that that you can use in your business. So we've all been enjoying the trend of free online returns, especially thanks to Amazon, who uh, kind of set the standards a few years ago. And because there hasn't been any cost to us for returning items, some of us are bracket buying. Bracket buying is where people buy multiple sizes and colors of the same item and then send back what they don't want. The problem is that the returns aren't free for the merchants. And according to data from the National Retail Federation, the average retailer has $166 million in returns for every $1 billion in sales. That's a high, that's a high amount. And it can cost a company 66% of the price of a product to process these returns when you when you figure in the shipping, the handling, possibly cleaning or fixing, and then repackaging it. So in these inflationary times, what do retailers do to minimize the cost, regain the profits, and maybe even make some revenue somewhere? Some of the companies are testing a um, charge for uh, returning items or a return fee. And uh, they're trying to assess how customers are gonna react so that they can gauge if that drop in sales will be more than offset by savings. Other companies are leveraging their membership and VIP programs by touting that only loyal customers will still get the free return per. And more possible, merchants are really encouraging consumers to physically take items back to brick and mortar locations. So Kohl's and Walgreens, they've been really smart. They've contracted to be one of these drop-off sites so that hopefully when people are there, they buy other stuff. So this situation has also given rise to some new businesses. Happy Returns is an example of a new business that has emerged and is now offering what they call return bars. So return bar, they're convenient places where shoppers can easily return their items. They don't have to print any label out and they don't have to have any packaging. They just bring the item to the place and they do all of that for them. There are over 5,000 of these return bars pretty much across the US in high foot traffic areas, again, to make it convenient. So shoppers can receive immediate refunds without having to pay any fee. So it's really a clear proposition for the shoppers or returners. And then the value proposition for the merchants is also quite clear. So according to the Insider publication, the model is that happy returns consolidates the items and then sends them back to the retailer. So this means that it's cheaper for the retailer than paying for items that get shipped one by one. And then the merchants save up to 40%. So you can see that this is this is a good thing. It minimizes the labor costs, which hasn't even been factored into that and the time that the customer service departments may have to spend on those. So in happy returns case, <laughs> merchants can also receive a discount if they offer PayPal as a payment option to their customers since happy returns is now owned by PayPal, which is also interesting. But since most of us are not in the retail industry, what can we learn from this to apply back to our businesses? The first is, if your business is looking for a creative way to cut costs and manage these rising costs, you may test charging for some of the services that have typically been free or part of your offer. And then you may, given that some of your customers, you're trying to continue a strong customer relationship and experience for them, especially for your top customers, you may give them some of those services back um, in exchange for them earning it with their loyalty or you know some volume standards. But the trick there is to make sure that they know that most of the customers are paying for that and that they're special and get it at a reduced or a free rate. Another idea is to ask if the market conditions are creating a unique opportunity for, for you. Does the company have critical capabilities? that could allow you to be a middleman or a platform like Walgreens or Kohl's or even return bars so that um, you're providing a service that benefits suppliers and customers and you're making a profit. Hopefully you have a few things to take away from that. Um, Now I'm gonna introduce you to my dear friend and highly innovative person, Brian Matamor.
3: Hey, Mary. Thank you. So, welcome everybody. This month, I want to talk about something that's that's in the news, and it's going to, frankly, change our lives. What we're what I'm talking about is. AI content creation programs for, for writers. Two weeks ago at, at Google's AI at event, debuted a new prototype writing tool. And what made it, it's called WordCraft. What made this one unique and wonderful is it's for, it's for writing fiction. As you probably know, there are literally dozens of programs out there to create nonfiction content, but this one uh, is for writing fiction. And so what they did, which was very clever, they invited 13 professional writers Uh, to try out this prototype. And uh, the good news, there's good news and bad news. I actually think it's all good news. The bad news is that the the prototype was not particularly good at coming up with ideas or even structures for stories. So it was a miss on that. But it was not a miss on um, helping these writers sort of rewrite phrases and generate prompts or ideas or other directions they might go or even make the sentences funnier right? The, the way they framed it is adding spice to their writing. So to me, this is an incredible advance in the world of fiction writing. Now, for most of the people in the audience, you're, you're probably not aspiring novelists, or if you are, you'll be interested in that. But, but most of us, I think, are sort of looking at business communication. And as, as I said, there's a tremendous amount of uh, going on here. Two of the more famous ones are Jasper and also Ryder. Writer, by the way, is spelled R-Y-T-R. Jasper just raised 1.25 million on a 1.5 billion valuation of the company. What makes the Jasper program interesting is that they have 50 templates, actually more than 50 templates around things that you might want to write. You know, as a business communicator, so you have to write a social media post. There's a template or an area that you go into for that. Or maybe you have to write website copy, right? Or maybe you have to write an article about something. These are all areas that that have templates to help you. It's been said that it's been even used to draft uh, TED Talk. Okay, another program that I like uh, is called Writer R Y T R. As I said. And um, so I, I thought it would be fun to put some prompts in this in these programs and, and share what came out of them so you can see the level of sophistication that we're now experiencing with these so uh, I put in a prompt the future of work which will tie into what Ginny's going to talk about shortly but it's wh- I said what is the future of work in AI and this is in the writer program and here's here are four sentences that came out from the prompt the future of work is changing rapidly. The rise of automation and artificial intelligence has led to a major disruption in the job market. A recent study by Oxford University found that nearly 50% of jobs in the U.S., are at high risk because they can be replaced by automation. Um, moreover, AI will continue to replace jobs and occupations at a rapid pace. What I found intriguing about this creation, and by the way, this is created in literally a second. And this was one of, I could have continued to prompt and say, come up with more ideas, more ideas, more, more ideas. What I was intrigued with with this is that they, they scraped a study, right, from Oxford University and shared that data point, right? The, the third pr- and last program I want to share with you. This to me, I love this one. It's uh, because it's incredibly simple to use. It's called Open AI Playground. It just came out uh, this year. It was in test and now it's sort of out there. It was created by a research lab in San Francisco and it's getting better all the time. Scary, maybe even for Mary, (laughs) because her son's in college. Students are using it now to write papers. And in some cases, they're getting A's on these papers by using this program. And because it's text generated by AI, uh, there's no plagiarism issues. As you probably know, there there are programs that uh, teachers use to see if the, the the work has been plagiarized, and that doesn't show up because these are created, you know, created. Uh, your seventy thousand dollars students' education per year, we'll see. But what I I wanted to share with you an actual prompt that I gave the program because. Again, I want you to see the level of sophistication that we're talking about here. So if you indulge me, I put in here, uh, write a short essay, 150 words or so, on the future of creativity. Obviously, that's a a great passion of mine, innovation, ideation, and creativity. So here we go. Again, if you'll indulge me, I want to read this, though, because I want you to to see what we got. So here we go. The future of creativity is shrouded in potential, but fraught with uncertainty. I'm going to do a side note here. That is a pretty darn good opening line, right? For an essay, right? That was pretty good. But despite the challenges that lie ahead, there are reasons to be optimistic about the future of creativity. Well, that's good. Okay. For one, the ever-expanding capabilities of technology are giving rise to new forms of creativity. And by the way, next month, I'm going to be talking about the creativity programs with respect to art which is also mind-blowing. Continuing, as technology becomes more sophisticated, it is opening up new possibilities for creativity and expression. In addition, the world is becoming increasingly interconnected giving rise to new opportunities for collaboration and cross-pollination of ideas. The internet and social media platforms are making it easier than ever for people to connect with one another and share ideas. Finally, as the world becomes more complex, there's an increasing need for creative solutions to the problems we face, whether it's finding new ways to combat climate change or addressing the needs of an aging population, the future will require more creativity, not less. So while the future may be uncertain, there are good reasons to believe that creativity will continue to thrive. I mean, I think that is pretty darn good. That took literally, I put the question in there, punched a button, and seconds later this came up. I mean, this is incredible, right? So what are the ramifications of this? Well, I think, not that we don't have enough content now, but I think this is going to mean in the business world we're going to be getting even more content because now it'll be so easy for anybody to create a blog. And just put it out there as if, quote, it was their thinking. Other ramifications of it, I, I do think it will trigger ideas, which is which is wonderful. And also, I like to think that, um, you know, great writers are great editors because they have to edit their work to make it better and better. I think we're in a position now where you may be a, um, a mediocre writer, but if you're a great editor, you could turn into a very good writer, right? Because you're, now you're editing these things. And the last thing I would say about it is I think it, it'll help overcome procrastination and writer's block, right? Because you have so much to work with here to trigger your brain to come up with these ideas. The last thing I want to share, this is a sort of a, you know, in psychology we call it infinite regress, but it's reflecting on reflecting on reflecting here. So what I, I I put into one of these programs, I said, well, what do you think of the programs, these AI programs? And, and this is what it sent back. And it was kind of freaky because it anticipated some of the ideas I had. It's just two sentences. We should not think of these AI writer programs as a replacement for human copywriters. Thank goodness. Okay, they just provide assistance to the content writers by getting rid of writer's block and generating content ideas at scale. So I hope this was curious and quirky. Hopefully not scary. Hopefully exciting. But you know the genie is out of the bottle. So we're going to have to figure out how to uh, to leverage these new tools now with an OD perspective on all of this. Okay, uh, we've got Ginny. Ginny, you're up.
4: Thank you, Brian. So uh, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about an uh, interesting topic. I'm going to talk about layoffs. And, and the question I'm posing, is there such a thing as a way to perform layoffs? So so why is this a topic? Um, layoffs have been around forever. But this is a topic now because in the past several weeks, there's been a lot of press due to Meta and Twitter. And most recently. Amazon being part of this discussion. Meta has laid off 11,000 people last week, which is about 13% of its staff. Elon Musk, with the purchase of Twitter at the end of October, he wasted no time in slashing his workforce. So he immediately removed the company's leadership, including its CEO, CFO, and top lawyer. And mass layoffs were announced on November 4th with about um, 50% of the staff cut. And the New York Times reported on Monday that Amazon plans to lay off about 10,000 employees in corporate and technical jobs. The reaction to this has is, is been pretty strong. And um, the quote from NPR, for more than two decades, the U.S. tech industry has been a reliable source of booming stocks and cushy high-paid jobs in the span of weeks, the sheen has faded and the ax has fallen. So, so those are the pretty strong words. And, and when we think of layoffs, you know, we've been having a very different discussion in the past two years. Um, it's a departure from what we've been talking about in terms of the great resignation, which is, you know, very overt with employees deciding to leave and to the covert of quiet quitting when employees decide to do just enough. But in those examples, it was the employee's decision. Of course, in layoff, it is the employer's decision. So so what's curious about this? As I said, layoffs are nothing new. It's actually healthy for a company to assess its resources. You know, how many do we need? What kinds of skills do we need? What's the mix of talent we need? So it's very healthy for organizations to always assess their their resources, but what's curious about this topic is really the how how the layoffs are conducted, and and certainly there's been attempts to soften the process by rebranding it. You know we hear downsizing, right sizing, reduction in force, and yes, that's much better than terms like getting pink slipped, getting axed, or being made redundant. So yeah, the the, re- the rebranding is it, it softens it a little bit, but the bigger idea is not about what we call it it's about mindset it's about how we think about and therefore treat our employees during the entire employee life cycle which includes layoffs so this is a kind we have to think about layoffs as part of the employee life cycle so the values we want demonstrated while employees are active should be the same values during the entire employee life cycle. So you think about the value should be consistent, the recruiting process, the hiring process, the onboarding process, the management process, and yes, even the offboarding process. And as a matter of fact, some companies actually manage alumni groups. They keep in touch with the individuals they've laid off to kind of keep them still in the family. So it's kind of interesting how some of these countries, companies deal with this. So simply put, when we think about layoffs and doing layoffs right, the north star of that is respect. In the case of layoffs, these people who provided uh, value to the company, it's a business decision to exit the person, but there is no need to devalue their contribution. So how people are treated is really expression of the brand as well. If people are devalued, the brand is devalued. So when we think about how to conduct layoffs respectfully, um, here's some, some elements of what that would look like. Um, it's important for leaders to be in front of the communication. Leaders should not hide during this time, and they should deliver the message in person. Um, it's important that the rumor mill doesn't do the job that the leader needs to do. We need to hear it from the leaders. And the leaders need to own the, the decision. For, for the layoffs and, and give the the organization, both the people who were laid off and the people who remain, get them to help them to understand why the decisions were made. It's, it's very important. Leaders should have empathy during this process and and they should allow the individuals who are exiting, allow them to say goodbye and avoid multiple rounds of layoffs. Layoffs happen in a repeated fashion. Uh, it creates a lot of uncertainty in the workforce. It has a negative effect on morale and on productivity. So the, the best strategy is to, to do it once, uh, be supportive as a leader, and also don't forget the people who do remain because they, they need to be involved and in, in, in understand this as well and understand you know what, what their new role is um, post the, the layoff. So when we talk about the mindset of respect, we're talking about treating people as people, versus treating them as numbers on some financial report um, and eliminating them just as we would press the delete key. So, as I said, respect is important. And and as I thought about it, you know, I thought of uh, Marie Kondo, if you can imagine that, who is the decluttering guru. And she says that people should say goodbye and thank you to their inanimate objects before donating them. So we as leaders should be able to do that and better when laying off valued employees. So with that, I'm gonna hand it over to Tim.
1: All right, thanks uh, Thanks so much for that very intriguing topic. And it segues really nicely, I think, into uh, my discussion on unconscious bias in your business and really the unforeseen impacts an unconscious bias can overall have on your business execution and the success of your business. In in today's world, as Jeannie mentioned, that you know the ever-changing economy, many companies are currently looking to downsize. But at some point, those same companies are going to turn things around and find themselves in a, I'll well, say, a rebuilding phase or rebuilding year uh, where they have to onboard a tremendous amount of new talent to potentially transform uh, their culture to adapt to the, the changing times. The overarching goal of you know companies today really uh, is really to make an impact, and you know by solving technical challenging problems, deploying valued solutions to their customers or to the, the community. And eventually, they will, ideally, they all want to scale their organizations, all while having a leadership framework in place that promotes strong culture and diversity. In fact, a 2018 study in, I think, by the Boston Consulting Group found evidence that the diversity in leadership teams improves both business innovation and financial performance as well. But today, you look at the world today, the smaller the company, you know, ideally, the more control one tends to have over things such as hiring, diversity company culture direction, and just general execution of the programs or the products that they're uh, delivering. And you can build the right culture uh, from the ground up. That's the ideal situation, as opposed to maybe inheriting something and having to edit, as Brian mentioned, uh, what you have uh, already in, in hand. Uh, as today's um, companies continue to really, I'll say, mature in scale, they tend to fall victim to a well-known psychological phenomenon called unconscious bias or cognitive bias, if you've heard that term before. And really what that is, it's a it's a prejudice or an unsupportive belief or really an attitude that exists deep in the subconscious. You may not even know it's even there, but it does manifest in different ways. Uh, not only can this really affect the work culture, uh, the diversity of thought, uh, you can also affect the overall employee experience as kind of Jeannie mentioned from beginning to the end. And we really need to modify this mentality and this behavior of our companies um, uh, are going to be uh, successful in the long run. Let's go back to the human brain for a second and the evolution of where maybe this or came from. So we all know that the human brain has evolved over the course of m- multiple millions of years, about three million years, and really naturally tends to make quick decisions and has bifurcated into really two philosophical different approaches to solving problems today. Otherwise known as System 1, uh, it's basically known as the ancient brain. And that typically operates quickly and efficiently and likes to make rapid connections with previously perceived patterns, uh, predominantly really from childhood exposures, as well as just the general experience we have uh, collected throughout our lifetimes. And really, the goal is to make decisions so quickly and efficiently, you don't really have to worry about absorbing or utilizing too many resources that are important for your body and your brain to function at a high level. And when I think about quick and efficient decisions, sometimes I think about what am I going to wear in the morning or what am I going to have for breakfast? You don't spend an hour thinking about what you're going to have for breakfast, hopefully. Uh, and just basic things like that, oh, I have to go brush my teeth, et cetera. Uh, you don't make a big deal about those kinds of decisions. System two, though, on the other hand, uh, operates very slowly and methodically. I like to call that kind of that the engaged or the engineering side of the brain because uh, what it does is it really rejects easy answers and can really focus on one item at a time when it's really, really productive. It likes to spotlight On those kind of key thorny problems. System 2 does take time to develop. It's not something that naturally is there and it naturally absorbs through the preconceived notions and the patterns that are perceived. It doesn't naturally adapt that way. Uh, But really, the goal is for it to be able to fact check data or decisions uh, that are made throughout that process. Now, the important part about System 2 is it's not always activated independently. Um, The one saving grace of System 1 is that it can recognize that hey, this is a little too complex for me to make a quick ultimate decision and efficient decision, so I'm going to engage system two. And that's one thing, one of the more powerful aspects of that ancient brain function is to engage uh, system two for that deep methodical thinking to help us analyze a problem in more detail. When we think about cognitive bias or even unconscious bias, really, if you will, uh, it is real and it can manifest in a tremendous amount of ways. Uh, There's decades of research on this and now they have hundreds and hundreds of potential biases. And every time I Uh, brief these topics, uh, someone always mentions, I've always known that was there, I just didn't know what it was called, right? And so that's a valuable aspect of the research that's been done uh, in in this domain. But I want to give you two simple examples that align with your business execution and things to consider as you go forward uh, in the process of um, execution. There's the hiring process bias. In this case, I'll align it to a, a gender bias. The National Bureau of Economic Research they actually performed multiple studies on how unconscious bias affects the hiring and let's say the diversity of an organization. What the study did is they took the exact same resume, all the same credentials, all the same information, etc. but they changed one simple thing on uh, that resume. They changed the name from John to Jane and they sent both those resumes out to a variety of companies, probably over a hundred companies, and they waited to see what kind of responses they got back. Uh, and throughout the, the course of that process, Um, it was found that resumes with identifiable male names were typically rated as more competent and or more employable, even if the exact same resume obviously had a female name. And so obviously that's not okay. Uh, And that's an element of what we're talking about, the manifestation of unconscious bias. And so given the exact same resume, you don't quite understand. I even saw another uh, study that had been done or it was just a simple example, social experiment, where one of the people in charge of the hiring process They received the the resume and they had changed the name of it to something different, but it was actually one of their kids. And they basically had this whole slew of perspective to unlock the unconscious bias that these individuals felt. And when their kid came in, they said, this is my resume. They were completely shocked with the process and the the end result. So more powerful effects, though, taking it beyond simply gender, were observed when the names were modified to culturally ethnic names or not traditional to the country of hire. And so that expanded the problem. Uh, And and the manifestation of this um, unconscious bias factor, showing that it's actually a global component, uh, has a global component as well. Now, there's plenty of things you can do here, you know, partner with your HR organization and other companies. Obviously, they can do a demographic scrub of the resume. You can do blind resume reviews and that can even expand into the execution where you can do blind peer reviews. Similar to like the mask, the, the TV show where people are singing behind their mask or the voice where everyone's turned around. All they hear is the voice, et cetera. Those kinds of things um, are, are really good ways for you to uh, eliminate some of that. And the same thing applies to when you find someone who went to your alma mater, you have kind of a direct connection with the person, automatic, even though you may not even know this person whatsoever, but you find yourself having somewhat of a, an initial affinity towards that person. And again, we have to kind of get away from that factor. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have opportunities to connect with individuals, but at the same time, we need to be conscious that we're making the right key technical decisions Based on the information that we have and the facts in front of us. The other aspect here that I want to talk about uh, is something called performance bias. We all know that in the traditional sense of businesses, there's usually a uh, performance assessment done at the end of the year that shows how well our employees did. Uh, there's some sort of criteria that's involved in that, some sort of subjective element that goes into uh, leadership characteristics, technical execution, et cetera. Um, and so Facebook actually did a, uh, ran an incredible Monte Carlo simulation that modeled the impact of a simple 1% performance bias on their organization. Now, what does that mean? That basically the way they structured the the Monte Carlo simulation was that they granted uh, men the opportunity to gain a zero to 100% rating while they only allowed women to gain a zero to 99% rating throughout the end of the life cycle. And starting at the beginning uh, across all technical bands and leadership bands throughout the company, they had an even split of about 50-50 percentage-wise and then, as they went through each of the cycles, uh, the performance cycles, if you will, they kind of forced attrition. So, the lowest people uh, of the organization or of the um, who got the lowest performance ratings, they would basically be dispositioned from the company. And then the highest percentage would be promoted to the next level. And I wish I had the, the visual here, but basically, after that course of uh, 20%, there was a significant skew in favor of the men. And it only got worse as you went up the leadership chain to the highest level of the executive rank of this uh, you know, false company. Um, so to me, that was really, really important. And it was only powerful because it's a simple 1% change. And there's so many more unconscious bias factors out there than a simple 1% performance bias that can actually force this type of behavior or this type of cultural evolution within the span of your company. So across the board, we have to be conscious not only of performance bias, of hiring bias, et cetera. There's plenty of other factors that we have to look across our business to evolve and make sure that we're doing things the right way based on facts and based on uh, giving people the opportunity to voice their thoughts and concerns. So so with many, so many potential risks really out there today for your businesses, you can't really simply ignore this conscious, uh, unconscious bias factor. If it's really left unchecked, uh, it can have a significant and detrimental impact in almost every aspect of your business area. can stifle innovation, creativity, reduce engagement, and really promote a toxic and disconnected culture where people don't feel comfortable or welcomed or or, or happy uh, because they don't see growth opportunity and a future for themselves in the company. Various studies have shown that if a company is successful in achieving these high levels of diversity, McKinsey uh, put out a report, the Delivering Through Diversity report, that suggested that companies are 33% more profitable when they have the most diverse executive teams. And in a similar study by Catalyst, when more women are present in the executive ranks, the companies reported a whopping 34% higher shareholder return than normal. Again, there's so many benefits of reducing unconscious bias, building diverse and connected teams, et cetera, but it's really just the tip of the iceberg to you know, hire the right candidates and minimizing conscious bias uh, in the workplace per se. We really have to look across our businesses and identify opportunities for improvement in all aspects and phases of company execution. So with that, I wanted to thank everyone for uh, for being here today. Uh, I do want, I think we have a little bit of time left over here and I wanted to make sure that we brought all of our panelists back uh, to the table. Uh, and so we can uh, answer a few questions and have a short table discussion uh, for, for the final 10 minutes or so here.
2: So Tim, I have a question for you. I loved your talk. Does the bias happen in System 1 or System 2 and has, and even in our H is part one, and then question part of that question is, even when they go back in time to the ancient brain, was there always bias there or did we develop it over time?
1: So traditionally, what the research has showed is that system one is really where you have a lot of the bias in place because, you know, you're making those kind of quick and efficient decisions. And you're not really thinking in detail about all the logistics and concerns and impacts your decision can have in the ripple effect. So that's really where it's at. Now, sometimes when you get into the detailed execution, um, groupthink becomes a big deal, at least I know in the engineering world. And that's system two is kind of manifested there because these are problems you're really thinking about. You think about the challenger, for example. So many people and research was being done on the challenger and then they made these key decisions. And it's a combination of that system one and system two that effectively ended up in the the result that uh, actually occurred. And then the other question uh, you offered was that, has it always been there? From my understanding, you know, it has. Um, I think it's gotten probably worse or it's become more prevalent because of the um, kind of surface level thoughts that we have to have these days. And everything is so fast paced and everything is competing for our time. So we're being forced more and more to make quicker and more rapid decisions on a larger scale and a longer time scale. So I think we're starting to see the manifestation of additional errors and issues driving this new unconscious bias and kind of revolution, if you will.
3: Mary, I thought I could share an example uh, from our work of uh, experience bias. I don't know if there is such a term, but, but you know, the innovation people we work with, you know, they're sophisticated. They've done a lot of innovation projects. They've learned a lot. But frankly, when you're creating the new, that can get in the way, you know. And one example was we were working with uh, Sears. Actually, it was Dana her Tool which made craftsman tools for Sears. And one of the ideas that, that we had that was brilliant was to laser etch the sockets, right? So that you, you could laser etch so you could have really large sizes. So, you know, if you notice most sockets, they, they're they're imprint, you know, they're stamped, you can hardly see them. And so with this process, you, you have no trouble seeing it when you're under the car it would cost 10 to 20% more, but the bias of the buyer at Sears was people will never pay that much money more because he had been in a price game for so many years for their products. So how do you get over that? You know, We can't say, no, 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 they'll buy it. What we did was we did uh, qualitative focus group work and he was in the back and he saw how enthusiastic uh, people were, 10% more, 20, of course I'd pay that. You know, my time is worth money. I'd give it to my father who can't see. blah, 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 blah. And so I guess the point is that one way to get past these biases is to bring in other voices um, to, to help convince them rather than you trying to convince them.
1: That's a great point, Brian. And I think one of the things that I've witnessed throughout my career is you have these people who are the experienced subject matter experts driving these key decisions on this is how we need to do things because this is the direction the company wants to go or that we tried all this other stuff in the past and it hasn't worked, et cetera. Um, So what, what happens is that those kind of junior folks in the organization, they tend to get shut down multiple times and they just basically take a step back and they don't continue to challenge or innovate, as you mentioned along the way, because they're used to the rejection overall. But one of the things that we as leaders can do is when we're in the same room as these discussions are going on, Uh, We can actually use our platforms, those of us who have platforms of privilege, leverage that platform of privilege to give other folks the opportunity to actually voice their opinions and voice their concerns, especially to help them champion overlooked ideas, making sure that we actually dive a little bit deeper and actually force the discussion to give them the opportunity to share their thoughts and make sure that they feel like they've been heard throughout, Uh, because we can't have a single individual or a group of individuals driving the kind of alpha mentality and and not allowing anyone else to voice you know these innovative uh creative ideas that could potentially significantly help the company uh, in the long run
3: and and i think tim your point about diversity probably naturally helps that it does you know well let's let's hear what the person from saudi arabia thinks you know
1: that's right that's right yeah and that's and that's where we as leaders have to recognize that that is an important aspect and a value add to the conversation And so we have to create this pool of shared meaning that forces everyone to communicate their thoughts and ideas. Because if one person comes to, if two people come to a discussion and they both have the thing that they wanna get out of the discussion, but they can't hear the other side of it, you know, they're they're gonna be in a lose-lose situation. However, if they both allow themselves to communicate and into that pool of shared meaning, very likely they're gonna come up with a solution that neither one of them could have been able to think about on their own. And that's the, the power of innovation and the power of uh, creativity here that our companies need today to uh, continue to be successful in this ever-changing world that seems to happen almost every single day.
3: You know, by the way, I I should just finish my story about this guy. You know, it simply should be hiring for openness and flexibility because this guy, to his credit, the buyer at Sears, as soon as he heard what these people were saying, he said, oh my gosh, we're launching tomorrow. And they literally launched the project in 30 days. And so, you know, implicit, uh, in that story is the fact that we were working with great people who were open to new inputs. You know that was that was critical to succeeding at it.
4: The other thing I would like to add on this is when you hear the term unconscious bias, it 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 sounds like it's a bad thing that, you know, I don't have it, but everyone has it because it's about how our brains are wired and our brains are wired for survival. You know, we hear the, you know, the fight or flight. So um, our brains take shortcuts and, and the shortcuts of survival that, that are just the way we're wired neurologically cause the unconscious bias. And as Tim was saying, it causes us to make fast decisions and because our brain is making shortcuts. So, so the one way to, to kind of counteract that is for everyone to really understand everyone has unconscious bias. And the key thing is to be conscious of your unconscious bias and, and think about it and say, wow, am I making that quick decision because this is how I've always done it? Or, you know, maybe I need to be open to another way of doing something. So, so it's interesting. Um, it, it's not like some people have it and some people don't. We, we all have it. Um, so I, I think that's helpful in, in, in kind of putting it out there. Say, OK, let, let's be conscious of this.
1: Perfect summary there. Uh, and, and I would say that if you, if you want to understand uh, the unconscious bias, there's plenty of tools out there. I know Harvard did a research study where they actually go through different image identification and they basically do quick assessments. You click on image that you recognize associated with a certain thing. and It'll kind of give you different aspects and kind of give you in, uh, insight into uh, the unconscious biases that you may actually have um, internal to your system, which as Jeannie mentioned, is a very unique thing and it's based off your own past experiences your childhood, your childhood, et cetera, and it's effectively like a unique fingerprint for you. No one has the same combination of unconscious biases in their system. And so this one-stop shop of we're going to do this general training or these other types of things doesn't really work. It has to be tailored to each individual as you start seeing the, the, the biases actually manifest and help them understand uh, what the outside observers are potentially seeing. Okay, any other questions from the group here? Got a couple more minutes.
2: So, Ginny, I have a question for you. i love um I love how you're talking about how to treat them all the way through. Um, I think you might have talked about it or maybe we've talked about it offline. Is the boomerang hiring is it, the other reason you should be nice to them is because a lot of times there's a high percent of people that get hired back into the company. Do you remember that?
4: Yeah, yeah, they they do get hired back. I don't know exactly what the percentage is, but that's that's certainly an option. And that's why I think the companies who have these alumni groups are very smart. Because, you know, when you think about it, that company that you've worked for is on your resume. You know, it doesn't go away because you've been exited out of the company. That's still part of your your professional resume. And so you still have an affinity to it. You know, treat people well, and they're going to think well of you. And, And to your point, you may come back into that organization or you may be, you know, a client of that organization. You know, some, some people, um, you know, are exited and um, there may be um, business opportunities with the company who exited them. Um, so you never want to burn bridges. I mean, as simple as that sounds, it's, a, it, you know, not burning bridges is is such great advice in all things and certainly in business. And even though the business is making the decision to exit that individual don't burn that bridge. You know, don't don't think you, you know, well, you know, we'll never see them again. The world is really small. It's amazing how many people you encounter that you never think you're going to see again. <laughs> so don't burn the bridge. <laughs> isn't, isn't that the, like a uh, very philosophical, <laughs> but it doesn't have to be complicated. I mean, treating other people well is not complicated.
3: We just need to do it. And I would just say, you know, we uh, before the pandemic, we did quite a work, quite a bit of work with with Amazon and the recruiting and retention people to build some of these skills that you're talking about, Jenny. Gin- so I'm, I'm assuming they're going to need them right now.
4: Yeah, but there, there's been a lot of discussion, you know, how how each of these business leaders perform these layoffs differently. And some were callous and some, you know, weren't. They were compassionate. And so I, I, my suggestion is be more on the compassionate side and the respect side, because these people have done nothing wrong. It's, 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 these were business decisions not made by them. They've added value for, for years. And, um, you know, as I said, treat them with respect. And, uh, you know, there's, there's really a shortage of, of loyalty as it is in, in companies. So, you know, why, why add to the the dissatisfaction and the you know and the erosion of the brand.
1: Well perfect. Uh, thanks everyone for such a fascinating round of thinking topics, opinions, discussions uh, from the expert crew here. Uh, if you have any questions uh, in the audience, uh, please reach out to us at Caltech at Caltech.edu. Uh, I think there's a QR code somewhere on the screen. Uh, you can actually uh, use that to scan all the events and add those to your calendar. Uh, We here at Caltech wish you a safe and happy weekend and a uh, wonderful Thanksgiving holiday break next week. Uh, Thanks for joining us and we'll see you all back here in December. Thank you so much.
0: Curious and Quirky is a LinkedIn live event with course leaders from Caltech Executive Education. This is a fast paced, five minute per speaker, oh yeah, take on what's hot in marketing, innovation, transformation, future of work, platform strategy, design, and agility. Brought to you by the course leaders from Caltech Executive Education.